please be seated. And if I could ask you to uh, look up in your Bible the passage which was read for us a few minutes ago. This was Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 13, and it's page seven, excuse me, 978 and 979 in the uh, church Bibles. Matthew chapter 13 and selected verses from the early part of that chapter were read to us. It is springtime in, uh, just by the Sea of Galilee. Great numbers of people have come enthusiastically to hear Jesus preach. But what will be their response? The seed was being faithfully sown, but what would the harvest bring? We can picture Jesus sitting in the prow of a boat, perhaps, uh, 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 pointing perhaps to a field where a sower is scattering corn seed onto the ground. Look, some of the seed is falling on the pathway and you can already see the birds coming along behind and pecking it off the hard ground. No harvest there. Other seed is falling on stony ground where the soil is just an inch or so thick. That seed will shoot quickly But because it cannot put down proper roots, it will shrivel in the burning summer sun. No harvest there either. And then some of the seed falls onto ground which has not been thoroughly weeded. And at the same time that the seed starts to grow, so will the weeds. And they will stifle the growth of the seed. Still no crop. But there is a fourth kind of soil. This is the ground that has been dug over, the stones removed, the weeds uprooted. This is ground that has been well prepared. It's ground that is receptive to the seed. And the seed falls there and it will germinate, it will put down roots, it will send up shoots, it will grow and thrive, and finally, that seed will produce a harvest. In the parable, the seed, of course, stands for the message about the kingdom, verse 19. It is, as verse 20 puts it, the word, or as it's put in the version of the parable that's recorded in Luke's gospel, the seed is the word of God. And the different types of soil are the different types of human heart to which the word of God is addressed. Only some are receptive, responsive hearts. And so the main point of this parable is this. The fruitfulness of God's word depends to a very large extent on the receptiveness of those who hear it. Whether or not God's word will bring forth fruit depends to a very large degree on the receptiveness of those to whom it comes. And it's this one central point 
that I would like to explore with you this morning. How can we ensure that we are good ground hearers of God's word? How should we receive the word of God? Well, firstly, we receive God's word aright when we receive it with confidence. Our God is a speaking God. He is a communicating God. In the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, no less than ten times we read, and God said. And then we have throughout the Old Testament similar expressions, expressions such as, hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to such and such a prophet. Someone has taken the trouble to count up the number of times in the Old Testament that God is said to speak. Care to guess? 3,808. God is a speaking God. And then when we come to the New Testament, we find that Christ and the apostles regarded those Old Testament scriptures as completely authoritative. Nowhere is this put more plainly than in the letter that the Apostle Paul, the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the young Christian leader, Timothy. In chapter 3 and verse 16 of that letter, Paul declares this, all scripture is God-breathed. And that expression, God-breathed, doesn't indicate that, God, that Scripture is breathed into by God, but rather that it's breathed out by God. Just as for us, just as for me now, speaking involves the breathing out of words, so God is pictured as breathing out the words of Scripture. The same idea is picked up by Jesus himself when he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In fact, Jesus himself demonstrated complete confidence in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of those Old Testament scriptures. The scripture, he said once, cannot be broken. Moreover, Jesus did not only put his seal of approval, absolute approval, on the Old Testament scriptures, but he also pre-authenticated the New Testament writings by promising that the Holy Spirit would guide his followers into all truth. The Holy Spirit would guide them as they penned those inspired epistles and gospels and other writings. This comes across very clearly in some of the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples on this earth. In John chapter 14, 15 and 16, we read the following. He said to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth 
And when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And let's not miss on this Trinity Sunday the Trinitarian structure of what Jesus is recorded as having, say, uh, having said. He's saying, in effect, I, God the Son, will pray to God the Father, and he will send you God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will guide you into all truth. This, in outline, is the doctrine of the inspiration of the Bible. And I want you to have complete confidence in that doctrine. I think that when we are speaking to those who aren't yet Christian believers, then we perhaps have to begin at a different point and begin with the general trustworthiness of Scripture, perhaps pointing out to the writings of Luke and showing how he very carefully researched all the things that Jesus said and did. But for Christians who are followers of Jesus Christ, we can take it on his authority that scripture comes with all the authority of God himself. Speaking of myself, I can say that when I became a Christian at the age of 19, this sense of confidence in scripture, as it were, came with the package. I have never seriously doubted that what scripture says, God says. But this, of course, doesn't mean that I haven't struggled uh, quite often to understand the Bible. So let me move on to my second point, which is this, that we receive God's word aright when we receive it with not only confidence, but now with understanding. I've just been emphasizing the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture, the conviction that it's God-breathed. But I want to stress that the Bible is also an intensely human book. The 66 books of the Bible, written on two different continents, using three different languages, over a period of 16 centuries by about 40 different people. Among its writers were judges, kings, priests, prophets, patriarchs, prime ministers, herdsmen, scholars, soldiers, physicians, and fishermen. Various parts of the Bible were written in tents, in deserts, in cities, in palaces, and in prisons. Sometimes in situations of grave danger, and at other times in circumstances of intense joy. The Bible contains many different types of writing, including poetry, history, prophecy, laws, official records, gospels, epistles, and apocalypse. And then there are all those stories in the Bible, beginning with the tale of a garden and ending with the city of gold. I think we certainly need to take all this very human diversity into account when seeking to understand the Bible. In this regard, I have very much valued for many years the advice of Miles Coverdale, one of the earliest translators of the Bible into English. Coverdale said this, It shall greatly help ye to understand Scripture, if thou mark not only what is spoke or written, but of whom 
and to whom, and with what words, and at what time, where, to what intent, with what circumstance, considering what goeth before, and what followeth. In other words, context is key, and understanding the author's intent is king. But you know, the best key of all for understanding God's word is the key we have just used to unlock our confidence in it. That key, you remember, is Jesus Christ. Do you remember how two days after the crucifixion of Jesus, two of his followers were trudging home? They were feeling desperately upset because they had pinned all their hopes on Jesus and now he was dead. As they walked along the road, they were caught up by a stranger. His unforgettable words to them are recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That stranger was the risen Christ, of course. Perhaps he started with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the first promise of the Redeemer, and traced that promise throughout the scriptures. He may have lingered at Genesis 22, which tells of Abraham placing his only beloved son, yes, the same Isaac, on the altar. Probably Jesus touched on the Passover, the Levitical sacrifices, the tabernacle ceremonies, the Day of Atonement, the serpent in the wilderness, the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, and the prophetic messages of various psalms. Yes, as Jesus himself taught those two people on the road to Emmaus, the key to understanding the Bible is to see Jesus Christ on every page. Yes, indeed, the great theme of Scripture is Jesus. The story which the Scripture unfolds is the story of Jesus, the promise of his coming and the fulfillment of that promise. Here are some words by the saintly Scottish Christian Robert Murray McShane, who achieved in his lifetime more than many of us can dream of, and died before the age of 30. He said, when you are reading a book in a dark room and find it difficult, you take it to a window to get more light. So take your Bible to Jesus. So let's receive God's word with confidence. Let's receive it with understanding. But what's missing? Ah, yes. We need to receive God's word also with obedience. Confidence in the Bible is good. Understanding the Bible is good. But in fact, they are both worse than useless without obedience. 
James, in his very practical epistle, points out that knowing without doing is self-deceptive. Do not merely listen to the word, he says, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In fact, knowing without doing God's word is devilish. James goes on to say that it's no great thing merely to believe in God's existence. Even the demons do that, he says, but it does them no no good. It just makes them shudder. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, once described the person who hears these words of mine but does not put them into practice. And he says this is like building your life on sand. The wise person, he says, is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. To do that is to build on a rock. So just as Jesus is the key to our confidence in Scripture and to our understanding of Scripture, so he is the key to our obedience of Scripture. For to obey Scripture is to love and follow Jesus. Jesus once said to to some of his detractors, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And obedience born of a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ becomes not merely a duty, and a responsibility, but a privilege and a joy. John says in the first of his epistles, this is love for God to obey his commands, but his commands are not burdensome. Once again, then, let's have confidence in God's word, just as Jesus had confidence in it. Let's seek to understand God's word, recognizing Jesus Jesus as the central and overarching theme of Scripture. And let's resolve to obey God's word by living in Jesus and living for Jesus. I'm not going to try and tell you this morning how, when and how often you ought to read your Bible. But let me encourage you, perhaps just with one thing, If you were to set just 12 minutes aside each day, you could read Matthew's Gospel in a week, the New Testament in three months, the entire Bible in a year, a bit of discipline, a bit of pattern, a bit of routine, it can be done. I'm not going to tell you which resources you ought to read and which websites I think you ought to frequent in order to help you with your understanding of the Bible. I would just remind you, we have an excellent selection of material on our church bookstore, and that will be laid out at the end of the service for you to peruse. Um, whether you are a new Christian or a seasoned reader of the Bible. Plus, if you go to Holy Trinity's website, You'll be pointed to some other resources, including how to receive Bible messages each day by email, and even how to read the Bible in a year by email. And then if you'd like to consider daily Bible reading notes, then just uh, contact uh, Mike in the church office, 
and he can put you in the way of some good resources there. Uh, the phone number and the email address are on the front of your green sheet. But whatever else we do, let's make up our minds, if we haven't already done so, to be good ground hearers of God's word. Let's receive it with confidence, receive it with understanding, receive it with obedience. And then we will become fruitful Christians. Then there will be a rich harvest. And we will find it to be a joyful and a thrilling adventure. We will discover, as thousands of others have, countless of others have, that God's word are more to be desired than gold, rejoicing the heart. As we meet in the word of God, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is able to lead us to salvation that's in Jesus Christ and is able to equip us for every good work. Empower us now by your Spirit. As we have prayed before, so we pray again that we might become faithful doers as well as faithful hearers of your word. Amen.